Uh, aren't you glad God called Joe McKean to our yeah. church? Yeah. You know, I love that bald-headed, bearded guy. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. Hey, today's going to be a great day. Um, um, a, a new friend. I've known Kevin Azelf at a distance for a long time, but now we are so glad he's at our church. He's over the North American Mission Board. And, um, and, and you know, God is using him to kind of be the North American focus of, of us. And, you know, the truth is we're on mission in North America. And uh, I'm so thankful that he's here. Would you welcome Kevin Azell to our church? I'm thankful here, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Chris. We're going to be in Acts 13 if you'd like to turn there. Uh, and I just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And I get the, ch the chance, because of what I do, to go from uh, New Mexico to New York to Florida to uh, the state of Washington and see a lot of churches and a lot of pastors. And, and you, I know you know this, but you've blessed with one of the finest pastors in all of North America in Chris. And so, uh, and today, just so you know, if you're a guest, the sermon is not going to be as good. He's not preaching. Uh, but it's not going to be as long, all right? I promise that's so. <laughs> But, hey, as you turn there, I want to share, I want to introduce my family to you real fast. I didn't bring them with me. There's too many of them. But, but as you turn there, I'd like to throw them up there. I told you there's a lot of them. I have six kids and seven grandkids. All the grandkids aren't pictured because they're not all that cute. And so uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, some have just been born, but we have seven grandkids. But the, uh, uh, my wife's in the middle, Lynette. And then we have, uh, as I said, six. Our two oldest daughters are in the front row there. And then our oldest son is in the back. They're all married. We're very grateful for for all of them. And as I said, one daughter has four, one has three. Then God blesses the second phase of kids, if you will. Uh, the first child we adopted was Libby. She's in the front row there, right with my wife. She's from China. They found Libby in a shoebox outside of a police station. And uh, uh, we got her when she's one. She's now 20, and she's uh, in her first year of pharmacy school. She's a sweetheart, uh, an angel on this earth. And then the far right is Michael Lynn. Michael is from Ethiopia. We got her when she's three. <clears throat> Excuse me. She's now 18. She just went to college three weeks ago. And uh, um, we, we've been empty nest for three weeks now. Took me five minutes to get used to it. I kind of like it. All right. But <laughs> Michael Lynn, she's something else. She is, uh, her spiritual gift is bossiness. And so uh, <laughs> she's, she's incredible. And then on the far left is JM. JM is from the Philippines. And uh, we got JM when he was 12. And he's now 21, and uh, he's in Maui. He's a photographer, a videographer. And so we have six kids from four different countries, if you will. It's real funny. When I'm in the South and I say that, people come up and they'll say, well, bless your heart, you know. And I know what they mean. They mean better you than me. That's what they mean. <laughs> but I always say, no, 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 no. It, it's not like that. I'm just very competitive. <clears throat> now, what I mean is we have six kids from four different countries. When we watch the Olympics, we win. All right? We do. I always love to tell a story about when I went to pick up JM. JM, of course, he was the oldest we adopted. He was 12, and they had taught him English in the Philippines, so it made it a little more unique and different. But we went over there, and they said, be very careful with him when you take him back to the hotel because he's not used to some of the same luxuries you're used to. See, he was wandering the streets. They found him asleep on the streets when he was five, and he was in the orphanage from five until 12, and then we got him at 12. And so he said, he's not used to hot water. 
And we don't have it here in the orphanage. They have it in the Philippines, I understand that, but not in this particular orphanage. They basically had sink baths. So they said, just be careful. He'll hurt himself if you don't explain hot water. So, okay. We go to the hotel that night. You can imagine. Can you imagine? I've been all your life, you lived in, a, in an orphanage, and now you're in a hotel. I'm letting him bounce on the bed and doing all kinds of stuff. And so uh, he's having a good time. But it came time for bath time, and I said, uh, hey, Jay, come here. I want to show you something. And so I, I took him uh, in the bathroom. I turned on the water lukewarm. I took his hand, and I put it underneath the water. And I said, now watch this, Jay. And we just gradually, gradually turned the water warmer and warmer and warmer until he felt hot water for the very first time. And he said, that is wonderful. <laughs> I said, it is wonderful. You're going to love it. I said, now I'm going to go in there. You take off your clothes and hop in the shower. He said, shower? What, what's a shower? I wasn't thinking. You know, like, how would he know what a shower? They don't have a shower at the orphanage. Well, he, he wouldn't know what a shower is. So I had to explain a shower to him. Have you ever explained a shower to somebody? It's, never, it's not that easy. It's like water from heaven. You're going to love it. You know, it's, it's not that easy. It's some things we, what I've learned is, look, you, you may not want to admit this, but you're incredibly spoiled. I'm spoiled. You're spoiled. You're set in an environmentally controlled room in padded seats. I mean, you're spoiled. And we, we forget what it's like to not have certain things. You're not really worried about what you're going to have for lunch. You're going to have lunch. It's just what you're going to have, not if you're going to have something. I remember the first time we went to a restaurant, first time we went to a restaurant, he it was just overwhelming. He had all these choices for all of his life. He'd just been given something to eat, and you eat it. If you don't eat it, you don't eat. And he had all these choices, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I said, it's okay. I'll order for you. And I said, uh, bring him some chicken fingers. <laughs> He's like, no! <laughs> I don't eat chicken fingers. I said, no, son, they're not chicken fingers. I mean, that's just what they call them. He said, why do they call them that? I said, I don't know. Just dip them in barbecue sauce. It'll be okay. You know, you can imagine the first time we had buffalo wings. Oh, my word. I mean, international conflict at my house every night back then. So, but uh, he ate them. He took the shower. Forty minutes later, though, he comes out of the shower all shriveled up, smelling good in his bouncy, uh, matchy pajamas. And, 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 and I remember going to bed that night thinking, how many 12-year-olds, how many 12-year-olds would actually appreciate hot water because we really are spoiled hey son how how do you how do you 12 well what's your first name kale 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 listen uh, you taking a shower in the last two three days yeah. all right <laughs> all right hey uh kale uh, look uh and to be honest with me all right it's in front of everybody um, when you took that shower, did you go like, yes, hot water? Did you do that? No. You didn't do that. That's what I thought, Kale. You see, folks, Kale here, he's what's wrong with America. <laughs> you know? I'm kidding with you, sort of. But see, the problem is, he's spoiled. Kale, honestly, there's plenty of us around here that we don't think. We just get used to things, my point. The same thing is true of churches. When we talk about churches or planting churches, when Chris talks about planting churches, we're going to plant a church in Brooklyn. Oh, great. Right. That's what we need is another church. You know, people think, don't think there's a need, but there is. The majority of our family of churches, we call Southern Baptist, 85% are in the South. And it's typically all in the South. And that's why we need more churches in the Northeast, Midwest, and West in Canada. And, and uh, the, the Northwest in Canada. 
And that's why it's so important to plant churches. I just want to say thank you for how you've done that. And you may not even realize how you've done that, but when you give to this church, this church faithfully gives to missions. And you're doing things you probably didn't even realize you were doing. One of those is planting churches in every major city in North America because 84% of North America live in and around major cities. I want to show you just real quick, Washington, D.C., you've heard of it. Uh, Washington, D.C., these are the church plants we had in 2010. Because of your faithful giving, here's what they are in 2021. And now I want to see in Los Angeles, this is what they were in 2010. This is what they are in 2021. Now, the beauty of this is you want to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. Now, where do we get the idea of that? Acts. The book of Acts, that's what it's about. The church of Antioch in Acts 13 sent out their very best. The best way to plant something significant is not to send out your worst, it's to send out your best. We want to send out our best. And they, they went over, put a twig there, and began to plant these churches, what's called the first missionary journey. Okay? Acts 13, let's pick it up. Now, I'm going to move fast. And uh, so let's look in, in verse 1, and we'll just walk our way through it. Here we go. Now there, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it lists them all there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. And help me with those last three words. You ready? And they... Oh, my word. You're going to have to do better. I know Oklahoma got beat bad yesterday, but you got to be a little bit more excited. All right? Here you go. They, they sent them... There you go. Thanks, Kale. They sent them off. That's why it's important that you remember Antioch, they sent them off. Today, we're talking about missions. Everything your church does is about mission. All right? I went to your mission center last night and, and strategically focused like any good pastor would do. But what's dangerous is when you're part of a church that's very missions focused, you can yourself not be missions focused. You can just enjoy the victory of everybody else and see what your church is doing, but you're not really focused on your... Today, I want you, if you will, draw a circle, you stand in it, and let's examine you. How on mission are you? First of all, do you know Christ in a personal way? What a beautiful picture of what's happened in, in their life as they come to know Christ. And that's just the beginning, not the end. Now it's about being life on mission. Life with a purpose uh, and be strategic with the days that you have. Every one of us have a, an amount of days that we have. We want to make the very most of those days and to live on mission. How do you live life on mission? The first thing is to understand you live sent. Every one of you here today, if you're a believer, you were, you were put on this earth to do more than draw a breath and draw a salary. It's about being sent. Look, what did that verse mean when it said they laid hands on them and sent them off? What the church of Antioch was saying is, you said they were ordaining them? No, actually. They were saying, look, as you go, we go. You're going to go on the trip. We're going to stay here, but we got your back. You're a part of us. You're going to go on our behalf. Go get them. That's what they're saying. They realize they were being sent, whether they go themselves or they go through others in that way. The second thing I want you to see in this next part is to be obedient. Living on mission means living sent and living obedient. Look what this verse says. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, sent out by who? The Holy Spirit 
They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. John, Mark. <clears throat> I want you to notice something here. Now, you say, well, that's just a list of a bunch of cities. Yeah, it's, you're right. You go through Acts 13, you go 14 and 15, and that, and that first missionary journey, that's what it is. What I want to show you, though, is there's two parts of being obedient. One, they understood that they were sent by the Holy Spirit. They were sent by God. The first step of being obedient, of obe obedient is understand you're completely dependent upon him. I don't care how wealthy you are. I don't know how gifted you are, talented you are. Every one of us are completely dependent upon God. It was sent out by the Holy Spirit. You're completely, look, everything you have, be gone just like that. You're completely dependent upon him. And the only way to be effective in your mission is to understand, hey, I, here's my life. It's an empty legal pad. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'm completely dependent. The second thing is completely flexible. The reason I read the list of towns there, cities, they go from city to city to city. But if you read Acts 13, 14, 15, it'll say they were headed here, then God shifted them there. Sometimes they would go where they anticipate, but sometimes they wouldn't. There'd be a storm or some other reason. They'd be ran out of this town. They'd go there. They were constantly flexible. Or it's football season. You have to constantly call audibles. Life is like that. I don't know how long you have noticed, perhaps, but life doesn't always go down like you think it will. Good things happen. And bad things happen. Well, I call life throws us curveballs. But it's in how you respond to those curveballs. Living on mission means being obedient, which means, again, completely dependent, completely flexible, and understanding I'm going to be completely dependent upon him regardless of how life maneuvers and turns out, whether it be curveball or fastball. But also being obedient, you're going to have challenges. Sometimes people believe, if, hey, if you're a believer, then everything's going to, man, you know, I've committed my life to Christ. Everything's going to go well now. Well, you're going to have somebody that's going to walk with you through every difficulty, every through the valley of the shadow of death, and he's going to never leave us and forsake us. But you've not been promised a paved road here. It's going to be challenging. And sometimes because you're focused on the gospel, it's going to be more challenging. You know what I found? Is sometimes you're going to be challenged from outside the church. There are going to be people who are just absolutely against the gospel and do everything they can to get people not to hear. We see that in Acts 13. Then also, sometimes there's people inside the church that bless their heart. They're an issue. Man, every church I ever pastored, I had people in my church who were an issue. I had one particular guy who just thought his spiritual gift was being um, disgruntled, you know. I just want to stop the service and say, hey, would you want to lead us in a word of criticism? I could just tell you, you got it on your heart. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're going to find that through Scripture. There's just challenges on the outside. There are challenges on the inside. And what I'm asking you to do is not let challenges on the outside or challenges on the inside distract you from your mission. 
Challenges are going to come. When you live on mission, you're being sent. You're being obedient, and you're going to be challenged. But I want you to see a verse that the Apostle Paul focused on because he was being faithful and focused to the finish. Faithful and focused to the finish. And this is the verse he focused on. Look what it says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This man being Jesus, right? Paul and everything he did, through this man Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. Look, everything this church does, everything it does, is centered around people coming to know Jesus and following him in baptism, just like you just did today. That's the reason this church exists. And look, not just this church exists, it's the reason you exist. And we've been saved for a purpose, to go and tell. It's like Paul says, I can't help but proclaim what's happened to me. Even the Apostle Paul went through challenges. We talk about life throwing curveballs, and he stayed faithful and focused to the end. But even the Apostle Paul, greatest missionary we know, went through difficulties. He was ran out of town. He was thrown into jail. I, you can just read the book of Acts and see all the challenges he went through. He's not the kind of guy you take his resume and say, you know, he should be our pastor. No, 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 no. He had quite the list. But just in his darkest moment, the Lord comes to him in Acts 18, verse 9 and 10. And have you ever gone through a trial, a difficulty? Of course, we all have. Some are much harder than others. And what's the, the trial, the difficulty, the challenge that you've gone through that's the most difficult? Well, Paul is at the last, his last rope. Disenfranchised, disheartened, perhaps even a bit depressed. Trying to cover it up. The Lord knows this, and he comes to him at the darkest point of the night. And he says this to him. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, or that can be translated dream, vision. The Lord came to him and said this. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I love this verse. We're going to leave it up there for a second. We're going to walk through it. What's the first part, does he say? Do not be what? Afraid. afraid. You know the tense in which he's saying that? In the Greek actually means he was afraid, and he's telling him to stop being afraid. He's not saying prescriptively, don't be afraid. He's saying, you are afraid, stop it. Like, stop being afraid. Why are you afraid, basically, is what he's saying. I've got this. Stop being afraid. So the first thing he says is, do not be afraid. The second thing he says is, keep on speaking, go on speaking, and do not be silent. What's that mean? It means to go on speaking and don't be silent. Now, what it simply means is you keep on speaking and don't be silent. You don't quit. Don't shut up. You keep on doing what you're doing. Don't quit. So basically, the two things he's saying here is do not be uh, 
afraid and do not, all right, say it with me again. Do not be afraid and do not quit. Do not be afraid and do not quit. Now, it would be a pep rally if it was just that. Don't be afraid. Don't quit. I've had coaches before could rev you up at halftime or before a game, and you'd be ready to run through a wall for them. But that's not what's happening here. It's not a pep rally. The Lord tells Paul, Paul, do not be afraid and do not quit. Then he tells him why he doesn't have to be afraid and he should never quit. He tells him why. That that actually is a possibility, more than a possibility, absolute surety can do that because of the next few words. For I am with you. You say it with me? Or I am It's such a great job leading us in worship and the picture of the face of Jesus and singing songs. But look, think of that. For I am with you. The Lord's saying to Paul, Paul, stop being afraid. And don't you dare quit. Because I'm with you. There's not one thing you're going to go through. I'm not going to be there. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll walk through the valley of whatever you go through. You're not alone. I am with you. Look, if you, we would actually learn to rest in those four, five words, that phrase, I am with you, those four words, if we could just rest in I am, that he's with us, he's truly with us, it changes everything when you know he's with us and you know we win regardless of the circumstance we're walking through. I had mentioned to this earlier because I didn't want you to be disgusted right off the bat. But I'm from Kentucky. I'm a Kentucky fan. And that's offensive to some people. All right? I know around here you guys like football. I know that. Um, and Kentucky, that's not a thing. All right? We're doing better this year. We lost yesterday. But, again, it's not that big a deal. We always want to win enough games to go to a bowl game enough, and lose enough games to keep our coach. That's just how we are. <laughs> when I was growing up, when I was growing up, and if, 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 you know, if there were uh, tornadoes in the area, they had us all run to the football field because there was very few touchdowns there. It was the safest place. I'm sorry, I had to. I had to, I had to, I had to. So you get the idea. Football is, a, a, you know, for me, it was an appetizer. It's, 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 it's kind of like the chips and dip, all right? Main appetizer, basketball. Now, you just saw a picture of my wife. We got married on December 28, 1985, and she's the most wonderful patient uh, woman I know. But the very first marital um, challenge, we, I was going to say argument, but there wasn't an argument. She did all the talking. The very first <laughs> marital challenge that we had came in March of 86. It's something that's celebrated still today as March Madness, Okay. What happened? I was watching a ball game, and she, she wanted a Kentucky game, and she said, hey, she wanted to talk about something, and I just made the comment, well, can we wait until after the game? To which she responded, is the game more important than me? Well, I wasn't anticipating that question, so I had to think it through. <laughs> Wrong decision. Don't do that. If you're early married, don't do that. Answer like what she thinks she wants to hear. Just do it. Just do it. 
But I learned real quick that, that and she, so it led her to share some other challenges she had with me these first three months. She said, and another thing, you're too competitive. I said, too competitive? What do you mean? She said, you, you, go, you lose control of yourself when you watch ball games. When you watch a Kentucky game, you lose absolute control of yourself. You yell at the TV for crying out loud. Her dad was a hunter. He didn't keep score. He just went out and killed things. You know, I grew up keeping score. Somebody wins, somebody loses. And so I was like, you're doggone right, he yelled at the TV. I'm helping him along. I'm a part of the team. She said, they don't hear you. She said, you yelled at the referees. I said, I'm just encouraging them to get it right the next time. She said, you yelled at the coaches? Well, for good reason. I'm reminding them who's on the bench and who he should sit down. You yell at the kids, for my word. They're 18, 19-year-olds. You're, you're yelling at the kids. We pay their tuition. You know, I, I gave her all the reasons. She said, seriously, you got to get this under control. You scare the dog. When you watch TV, our dog is petrified. <laughs> so I realized how serious she was, and I decided to make uh, an adjustment really fast. And so I did that. I started taping the games, and so I don't watch basketball games live. I just don't. You can ask her if she's here, you can ask, I don't watch them live. I tape them. You say, we well, tape them, you, find out the, you don't find out the score and watch it later. No, 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 that's not what I do. I tape them, I find out what the score is, and if we win, I watch it. <laughs> and if we lose, I delete it. So I, right now, I can go home, watch any of the games we've won, and it makes, it makes for a much happier Alive, all right? It's real therapeutic. You think I'm crazy? Try it, you know? Some of you, it might be a good practice. It really might. But, for instance, uh, my, one of my favorite uh, games was when we played Michigan several years ago in the semifinals. I like it because we were down 10 points at halftime. The announcers were negative, negative, negative. Kentucky's down 10 points at halftime. It's an insurmountable lead. That's the most I've been down all year long. They're not going to come back. You know, all this negative, negative, negative. Did all that negativity bother me at all? Not on your life. No. I was going to the refrigerator to get me another peanut butter and jelly. Why? Because I know we win. <laughs> you can be negative all you want, but it doesn't, it doesn't influence the outcome of the game. We win, you goofball. Second half, I'm watching the game. 12 minutes to go, we're still down. <laughs> Six minutes to go, we're down by eight points. One minute to go, we're down by two, and they've got the ball. Am I nervous? Not at all. I'm petting my dog. Because <laughs> I know what happens. 40 seconds to go, we steal the ball. We go down the other end of the court. We're going to get a shot off? I bet we do. <laughs> they pass it around. They throw it to a guy named Aaron Harrison. He shoots it with three, two. Ball left his hands. Does it go in? It does. <laughs> Every time. And we win by one. I love that game. I've really watched it over 30 times. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> But every time I watch it, there's literally no anxiety, no stress. No, my heart does not beat fast except to the end when I just celebrate we won again. Now, that sounds silly. It sounds like I need counseling, but I want you to, stay, I want you to understand something. Basically, that's what the Lord is telling Paul. 
how ridiculous it is for you to be fearful. I told you I got this. There is a God, and you're not him, Paul. It's me. And I'm telling you not to be afraid. And when I say don't be afraid, you really don't have to be afraid. And when I say don't quit, you really, really don't have to quit. Why? Because I got this. And that's why he finished out that verse saying, there are many people in this city that you know not of. You know what, Paul? I'm going to use you to do things in the future you have no idea about. Things much greater than you could ever dream. I'm just this, I'm just that. Look, Paul, there are many people in this city you know nothing about. I got this. I just want to encourage you. If you're here and you do not know Christ, the reason this church exists for the gospel. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever anyone calls upon him can know him in a personal way. But that's just the start. Then you're to live on mission. To live sent. Obedient. There are going to be challenges. But you must be stay faithful and focused to the finish because you can. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to quit. Because he's got this. I want us to bow our heads. Look, I know I'm new to you. You're new to me. Um, but we do live life together. And I know curveballs come. My prayer for you today is that you would be on mission for him. Regardless. Father, thank you for how you love us. You care for us. You, you, uh, you love us in spite of us. And Father, sometimes we do in this life become fearful. We, we just confess that to you and give it to you. We sometimes do want to quit. And again, we confess that to you and give it to you. We, we, we want to be faithful to you, to be on mission. Father, use us to make the very most of every minute you give us in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.